we left last Sunday, got back yesterday, and decided, hey, we're close enough, let's drive up two and a half hours, spend the day in D.C. So we did that, and then uh, Thursday went and met one of my younger brothers in Baltimore and gave the family the tour of Baltimore, and um, we survived. We didn't get mugged or anything, so it was good. Um, and then got back yesterday, and it was one of those, it was good to be home. It was right, it was good to just sleep in our own bed and uh, hopefully get some rest last night, and it's good to be back with you folks this Sunday. We are in the next part of our series on Union with Christ, lesson seven of eight. So we're coming down towards the end. We'll wrap it up next week. Last week, one of the things we learned from Romans is as Paul has laid out what our identity in Christ is, he comes to this point where he now wants to start laying out practically what that looks like. What does it mean that Christ is in us and that we are in Christ and he's to be coming out of us? And how should we think of that? And as we began to see last week, uh, we really began to see that love is this expression that should be happening. And my Prezi is not up, is it? We'll try it again. Why not? For fun. Because nothing ever works the first time. <clears throat> Boom. That doesn't look good. <laughs> that might be difficult to read. Almost got Pentecostal on you right there. So there we go. Okay. So union with Christ is the spiritual reality that a believer is in Christ. Christ is in them, and the controlling reality of every relationship in their life is to be Christ coming out of them. And we find the primary expression of that in love. If you see Romans 12, verse 9, this becomes the umbrella truth over everything else that he unpacks. Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. What he goes on from there is, and depending on who you read or how well we count or the tense of some of the Greek, there are a number of commands. There are no fewer than 20 separate commands that flow out of those truths. Uh, and this is just rapid fire from Paul. And, and in one sense, and when we preached the Romans a number of years ago, we did this, we worked really command by command and tried to unpack what each one of those would mean and how do we apply that in our lives. And there certainly is a worth and a value to that, obviously. But also there's a worth and value to understanding the 20 commands all at once, that there's a weightiness to this. There is a rapid-fire weight that says this, this is all of life then. For me to be able to come this quickly with all these points of application from a Paul perspective is to say every part of your life should flow out of this. And so last week we looked at the uh, Christ, we ended with some homework for you, Christ washing the feet of his disciples, including Judas, Darren just mentioned his prayer. And then how do we even see Christ fulfilling these commands that we see in the rest of this text? I hope you took some time last week to work through that on your own. This week, though, and, and so I only have eight weeks in this series, and this series is not primarily about how, what are all the ways you and I live this out, um, but it wanted to help us in a very general way understand because of our identity in Christ, our union with Christ, what do I do? And so I want to tackle one command this morning. And it's one that goes after our time and our money. And routinely in the Bible, and particularly in the New Testament, uh, if Christ wants to work on our heart, the apostles want to work on our hearts, they go after our time and they go after our money. And the command that you see there in verse 13 goes after both of those. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And so he's telling us function or work out your identity in Christ in community. 
It's a glorious reality that when you and I are saved, we are put into community. No one is an island unto himself. And in fact, Proverbs warns us that those that seek to isolate themselves are fools, and they do it so that they can fulfill all their own fleshly desires. We instead are put into community. We expect to understand our identity and who we are in the presence of community. And it's a journey of our lives. Next week, the last session, we're really going to spend our time asking, how do I really rightly understand my identity in Christ? And how do I pursue that? And how do I frankly make that a part of my daily existence? Because it is so critically important. And so as we look at this and we begin to understand, I'm going to get a better comprehension of who I am as I do life with others. I will understand my role and my place. We see this in our home all the time. Parents teach this to their children when they're very, very little. They begin pointing out to them, here's your nose, here's your ears, there's a cat, there's a dog, this is a squirrel, this is that animal, you're a little human. And we start to inform children at a very early age about their identity and who they are. And as they grow up, they start to figure out, I have different gift sets, different abilities. Um, there's so many movies and books written around the concept uh, ancient history where if you were a son of a, of a shoemaker, you became a cobbler yourself. Or if you were the daughter of this, you became that. And we understand, but not children aren't always wired exactly the same as their parents. So they go through this process of identity formation of I'm a human, I'm a person. But then what are my gifts, talents, and abilities? How am I uniquely made to operate in this world? And we understand this in a Christian sense. How has God made me to function? And what gifts has he given me? And what is unique about me? And how does he want to use that? to advance his kingdom. Well, the best place for you to understand that is in the community of a local church. That's not my opinion because it serves me best. That's the structure that God has enacted. And all of its brokenness and all of its weaknesses and all of the ways that we do church so wrongly and badly in our culture today, it's still one of the best places for a Christian to really understand their identity. And it's as they interact with other brothers and sisters in Christ, and as we urge one another to love and to good works. But what if you don't really feel like you matter to the community? What if it feels like in your life that you have very little to offer to a community? What if you go through this life feeling like there's not much to you, there's not the gifts, abilities, the talents that really matter or are treasured? What if you feel like you serve, but you're never served? What if you feel like you serve lots more than anybody else in the community? What if you feel like the service you do perform is in vain or pointless? You've, you've invested, you've given your time, your energy, maybe even your money, your resources, and it's pointless and it seems fruitless to you. What if you're sacrificing? I mean, genuine sacrifice, not just the forego your Starbucks this week so that you can give to this child. That, that's not sacrifice. What if it's real sacrifice, it's costly to you, but deep down you know that you're really doing it just to get? You've spent a lot, but you want back more. What if your service has left you feeling more insecure and weary than full of joy like Christ holds out in John chapter 15? Is there any way for that kind of a person let me put it this way, is there any way for a person like that, which is to say a person like me, because I've struggled with all of those, to embrace community? What if community is a place that doesn't feel safe to you? What if church doesn't feel safe? What if you're terrified to be open, vulnerable, and honest? 
because it's cost you dearly. Is there any way for a person like you, which is to say a person like me, to work out their union with Christ, this spiritual reality, that a believer's in Christ and Christ is in me, and that's supposed to be the controlling reality of every relationship I do. Is there any way for me to practically take steps to move forward, to embrace this biblical truth, and to start functioning differently? And there is, and Romans has laid this out for us. Transformed thinking will lead to transformed seeing, which will result in transformed acting. We can back all the way up to Romans 12, 1 and 2. He said it this way, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or reasonable or normal worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so as I begin to think different as a result of saying, I'm going to submit my opinions, I'm going to submit my ideas, I'm going to submit the way I think to what God says through his word. And then I'm going to start to behave differently. It's, I'm going to see things differently. I'm going to start to act differently. It will lead to transform life. And so that would even apply if you're operating in a sense with a very broken community or you feel very broken and community doesn't seem to be working for you. How can I start to function differently? Well, transformed thinking will lead to transformed seeing. It'll change my perspective, which will result in transformed acting. And so we want to take that truth, we want to apply this concept of contributing to the needs of the saints and seeking to show hospitality this morning. Two great reflectors of love and revealers of love, and we really are all called to be Christ reflectors. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. Now the whole offer which Christianity makes is this, that we can, if we let God have his way, come to share in the life of Christ. If we do, we shall then be sharing a life which was begotten, not made, which always existed and always will exist. Christ is the Son of God. If we share in this kind of life, we also shall be sons of God. We shall love the Father as he does, and the Holy Ghost will arise in us. He came to this world, became a man, in order to spread to other men the kind of life he has. By what I call good infection, every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of being a Christian is simply nothing else, C.S. Lewis says. Now, we are not actually little Christs. We are not God, but we are little Christ reflectors. Every single one of us is intended to be this operational mirror of Jesus. So when, when we are saved and we are now united with Christ, we are now intended to be imaging him and working out that truth and that reality. It's, it, sanctification is becoming more like Christ because in essence it's revealing Christ in us. Sanctification is a lot less than to do with you doing it has a lot more to do with you becoming and revealing. When we begin to reflect upon the power of this truth, I, this past week when we were up in um, Massa Newton, we went to Harrisonburg, and uh, we, my, wife, all, my wife loves to hike. I do not. Um, no one in our home other than her and my eldest love to hike, but they love to hike. So she, she is gracious. She always trying to find hiking places the rest of us enjoy. She found this arboretum connected to James Madison University. We go there. It actually was really, really cool. We went up this one hill. It said a labyrinth was up there. We get to the top and there was a labyrinth. And what it simply meant was a circle structure of stones. And you can use those for a variety of ways, but one of the ways you can use them is for prayer. You can walk a prayer labyrinth. So if you ever come across one of these in the woods, I highly recommend you do it. And what it's intended to do is you pick up a stone, 
and you begin walking what's essentially this maze. You can't get lost in the maze, you just follow the course. And it's intended, one of the uses you could, you could have is you pray the whole way. You get to the end and you're carrying a stone, it's supposed to be like a burden. You lay the burden down in the middle and then you pray on your way out and express gratitude. So I did that. Um, I enjoyed that time, it was a blessing to me, it's good for my soul, good for my heart, good for my mind. Um, and as I'm doing this, I was reflecting on this reality God is not frustrated with my growth. I'm just curious, how many of you think or tend to operate that you feel like God is frustrated or irritated with you? Yeah. He's not. <laughs> um, God is not frustrated with trying to grow and change me. Uh, he knew what he was getting into when he saved me, right? Uh, he is a loving dad who's wanting to expand my capacity to experience love and joy. John 15. This is what he's doing. He's wanting to work more and more of Christ who's in me to come out of me. That's not irritated with me. He knows that that will be the deepest blessing of my life. When he has saved you and created you to be a little reflector of Christ, he understands your weaknesses. He comprehends your struggles. He's a loving father. He's not frustrated and irritated with you. He is at work in you to come out of you. Now, Lewis is not the first one who coins this term of being little Christ or Christ reflectors. Um, uh, trying to comprehend who Christians really are. In the beginning, the church was called the way. Uh, it was probably based out of Acts 9-2, we see that. Maybe it was after Jesus saying that he was the way, the truth, and the life. Maybe it was after the convert conversation Thomas had with him, where Jesus said, uh, they don't know the way. We don't know. But they all pointed to this truth. When you look at Christians, you should be seeing Christ, and that should show you the way. It should help you to understand. How do you really see Christ, though? What is the premier way? Well, John makes it very clear. Jesus makes it very clear, as recorded in John. By this, all people know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. Union with Christ is literally the way Jesus being worked out of each one of us. As we are in Christ and he is in us, both in death and resurrection, we are to live out this reality. Now, I don't know about you, but lots of times I have not thought that this is the primary way or the premier way that people would know that I'm a follower of Jesus. See, I spent lots of my life thinking the way people would think that I'm the premier that primarily think that Steve is a follower of Jesus by all the things I don't do. And here's a list of all the stuff I don't do. That's how you can know that I follow Jesus. Now, the reality is believers should run from sin. No brainer. But why does Christ say, by this you will know that you're my disciples? Because the reality is this. There is no more stunning reality than seeing the radical transformation of a selfish person made into a loving person. To see these people become like Christ in their love and their sacrifice for others. So Romans 12, 13, here we are united with Christ. Here we want to change the way we think to match what God says. Jesus says that a premier way of people recognizing and understanding and seeing that you follow me is your love. Let me ask this. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. 
Here's a couple questions for us. We'll interact here a little bit. First of all, is that love? To contribute to the needs of saints, seek to show us hospitality. This is an easy one, softball question, right? Home run, is this love? Yes, right? Let me ask this. How is this demonstrating Christ, though? How specifically is contributing to the needs of the saints and showing hospitality, how does that connect to who Jesus is? Is there anything we see from Jesus' life that would point us that that would be a stunning revealer? If you contribute to the needs of the saints, you show hospitality, how does that demonstrate love and Jesus to others around you? Sarah. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. He feeds 5,000. He feeds 4,000 on another occasion. He looks at them. He led them in the wilderness. They're hungry, and he feeds them, right, out of his, his own power. He doesn't take from them. He just cares for them. Great. That's absolutely his Christ. What are some other ways? Ian. Yeah, he absolutely loved and served. He served in healing. He served in giving. He served in care. Good. Absolutely. And what, any other ways? Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. There. Yeah. He did life with them. He shared his life with them. He was open, honest, vulnerable with them. Um, when Christ goes and ministers to the woman at the well, does he do it out of his strength or out of his weakness? He says he's tired and he's thirsty and he's hungry. Does that sound like strength? No. You ever heard the term hangry? Right? Like, Jesus wasn't hangry. But, like, let's be honest. If you are thirsty, hungry, and tired, what, a, what level of blessing are you to be around? Right? He ministered out of his weakness and vulnerability. He's honest about the struggles of his life. He's honest about his life. He opens up his whole life to them. To contribute to the needs of the saints, to seek, to seek to show hospitality, is to pattern our lives after Christ. One of the greatest parables that he tells, or stories that he tells, is of the Good Samaritan. And here we, we know the story. The Good Samaritan is walking along. He finds this man broken, bloody, beaten. The man, um, we have no idea of his background. We have no idea of his history. All we know is he's nothing like the Good Samaritan. He's a Jew. The Samaritans have nothing to do with the Jews. He's an enemy. He's an obvious one for the Samaritan to just keep walking by to easily pass judgment on him. But instead, he doesn't. He reaches down. He ministers. He puts his own life at risk to care for him. He pays for him. He, he clothes him. He bathes him. He cleanses his wounds. He provides for his future. Jesus is the ultimate Good Samaritan. Jesus says, I'm leaving you, but I'm going to do what? To prepare a place for you. And it's not just a place, it's a home, isn't it? It's a home where? With him. Jesus is the ultimate demonstration of one who contributes to the needs of the saints and seeks to show hospitality. And yet we continue to exist in a world and a culture where that is profoundly difficult. For a number of reasons, we'll, we'll unpack some of those, but I think it starts with the fact that we don't see each other the way we're supposed to. I think the reality is you could do years and years of life in church with people and never know them. Never be invested in their lives. Um, never be deeply connected to the joys and the sorrows of their life. And I'm also 100% convinced, I'm just as convinced, 
that that's not at all the way God expects life to be. Not for his children, not for those that follow him. And, and so we're not going to ever contribute to the needs of the saints or seek to show hospitality if we remain at distance from one another. And so uh, when we're told in Romans we need to think differently, then we begin to wonder how should we think. Well, uh, the way God begins to describe believers as they operate with one another is in family terms. Over and over and over again, we are referenced as family. Um, we're to view one another as brothers and sisters. When I was on my way up to Virginia, it occurred to me, I don't know how far away my younger brother, who now lives in Pennsylvania, lives from Baltimore, so I reached out to him. It was two and a half hours for me, two and a half hours for him. We got together, we, we ordered some pizza and subs from a place when we lived in Baltimore that we loved, and we sat together in a park for three hours to connect. It, the time went by fast because he's my brother. And suddenly as Christians, we're starting to be referenced as brothers and sisters, as joint heirs with Christ, as adopted into the same family. He uses all these family terms. We see expressions of this. We're called to discipline those within the community. This is an act of loving care. In 1 Corinthians 5, he tells us, you don't discipline people that are outside the community. They're not part of your family. But there's news stories. It feels like at least once a year there's a news story, and, and I don't know why, but it usually is some cranky old man in a Walmart gets mad at somebody else's whiny child, and they go and they correct them. You can't do that, right? That's not your kid. Part of the way the church functions is as a family, we discipline those that are in that community. We are responsible for one another. We're called to spiritually care for each other. In Hebrews 3, 12 through 14, we're told to exhort one another daily unless we be hardened by the deceptiveness of our own sin. Every single one of us is a sinner, uh, even saved by grace. We still are prone to sin. And the Bible is telling us that unless we are having these healthy, deep, open, transparent, honest interactions with one another, it is easy for any one of us to become hardened, that is to be resistant to the truth, because we're deceived by our own sin. And so he says, exhort one another. Get invested in one another's lives in such a way that you help to take the blinders off of each other's sinfulness. We're members of the same body. In 1 Corinthians, when he talks about our spiritual gifts, you are multiple parts, but you are one body. And so there's all this intimate connection that's going on here. Family, responsibility, one body all along the way. So let me just let me ask this question, and, and so now we can... Um, pick on Christians, right? We get to pick on ourselves. What are some ways that Christians don't do a good job of loving other Christians? What are some ways we tend to, to just fall flat? And you know what? So uh, it's always hard to go right to our own hearts. So um, let's, let's, we'll try it this way. What are, some way. what are some ways you've seen other Christians not do a good job loving other Christians, right? What are some, good, what are some stories you've heard where Christians don't do a good job loving other Christians? What are some ways... Christians don't do a good job loving other Christians. How does that come out of us? Will? Yeah. Even though the Bible's really, really clear in Galatians that if we see even someone in sin, we should go in a spirit of humility lest we commit the same sin, right? Um, we live in a culture, I'm going to park on this one just a second. I saw your hand, Wayne, I'll come to you in a minute. Um, we live in a culture that is entertained by the extremes. That's, that's our culture, right? So um, <laughs> a couple weeks ago, we were watching TV as a family and hoarders. How many of you have seen hoarders? If you're a hoarder, I love you and I want to come into your life and help you. Um, 
And by that, I mean connect you with somebody else. No, just, um, it's the extremes, right? So you look at the show like this, and you're like, how could anybody do this? But here's the reality. Has your heart ever found an unreasonable or an extreme level of emotional attachment to an object? Have you ever had a sense of security based on the things you own or the numbers in your bank account? Like, so we're all there, right? This is an extreme of that. And so Galatians 6, in a mindset, we would look at even another believer, if they were a hoarder, he would say, you know what, that is not a sin that is far from me. I'm not going to judge you. I want to come into your life to serve you. But we are quick to judge and think we're better than everybody else. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wayne? Absolutely, absolutely. So position is what determines obedience, not Christ. It's a job or duty or responsibility, not a reflection of Christ in me coming out of me. Good, good. What are some other ways Christians, we don't do a good job loving others? Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah, we just, we cease the relationship. We're done with it. We're not going to resolve it. We're not going to reconcile. They've offended us. We don't, we don't want to be around them. These are good. What are some others? <laughs> yeah, I don't need to love and serve them. Somebody else can do that job better. These are good. These are good. It's always nicer when you make the application instead of me. Yeah, Beth Ann. Yes, because there's the natural affinity and draw anyway. So that's, that's the easiest. Even though the Bible is so crystal clear that the local church is to be a mini reflection of heaven where it is people that are very different from us, but we're united in Christ. Good. These are really good. What are some other ways? We don't do so. Gary. Uh, yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, one of the things I've been learning over the years is if I don't build gap in my life, gap space, you understand what I mean? That If I fill every moment of my time, then I don't have time to do when emergency happens or other things happen. And I think we tend in our culture to live with no gap space at all. So service has to fill, filter into or fit into my already established calendar rather than a willingness to adjust my calendar to serve. So we serve when it's convenient. We spend when it's convenient rather than making it a priority. Good. I think I saw another hand. Yeah, Brenda. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Brenda, you're jumping two points ahead, but I'll forgive you. I love you anyway. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, the reality is we can become so consumed with the struggles, the trials, the, the difficulties of our lives that we, we think we have to be served instead of serving someone else. Maybe Christ is calling us to serve out of some of that weakness. We are called into deep relationships with other Christians. As we've been learning, God has created us for community. Instead of seeing one another as just fellow citizens of this area, or as this happens to be someone who's also a member of my church, we should see each other as family. 
Now, I just want to rabbit trail for one brief second. The problem is, what if we don't do family well? Like, what if we do family in a way that says, this is somebody I only speak to once a year, or I don't want to invite to this event, or I don't want to be around. What if the way we do church has lots more to do with the brokenness of our own hearts, so even the illustrations the Bible is giving us as family don't seem to work for us because we're actually really content to do estranged relationships with people that God intended for us to do a lifetime with. And so when we start to recognize that we've got to really reframe the way we think, I have to really begin to adjust my mindset. You guys know enough about me to know that I, I would spend lots of my life as a lone wolf um, that's not a laudable term in my mind. Uh, taking my kids back this week and showing them the houses I grew up in and schools I went to and literally being on the, at the places, the physical places where I did some terrible things out of self-preservation, self-protection, to realize that God has called me to do life with you. He's called me to be willing to be hurt, to be willing to be vulnerable is so Hard for me. It's terrifying. Do you ever get terrified over the concept of being open and vulnerable to others? I do. And yet relationships are sourced out of honesty and openness and vulnerability. These kind of relational connections, instead of seeing each other just as members of the same church, we should see, see each other as members of the same body. I love these two stories. Latoya Wimberly and Ashley Thomas were best friends for 17 years. And then they discovered they actually had the same dad. They weren't just friends. They were sisters. Suddenly, best friends from almost two, de two decades discover their family. Julia Tennant and Cassandra Madison were both adopted from the Dominican Republic, and they became friends at work. Their friendship went deep, and they started acting more like sisters than just friends. As a joke, for Halloween parties, they would dress identical and pretend that they were twins. This went on for years and years and years. Eight years later... They took a DNA test and discovered they actually had the same mom and dad from the Dominican Republic. Discovered they had a number of brothers and sisters they had never met. They'd been placed through separate adoption agencies. They would have no other way of knowing. Friends who became family. Can I just ask you this? What do you think the effect of the transformation of that relationship was? They were already close friends. Does it really make a difference that they became sisters? What do you think the real difference would have been then at that point? I think it actually would have changed a lot. It did for them, and by their own testimony, it did. For them, in both these situations in particular, when they had had an unsettledness for both these sets of ladies over their own history, and a, a question of who am I, realizing that I am deeply biologically connected to this person that I was already close with gave them both a sense of settledness and rest and peace. It gave them an understanding and a comprehension of who they are. I'm not just a lonely person going through life finding friends. I actually have family connection. And it's someone who loves me already deeply. It's profoundly important to both of them. If we truly begin to relate to one another the way Paul is telling us, 
the way it's been unpacked for us, we will be much more than friends. We become family. We have to see each other this way. Romans 12 tells us we must be transformed the way we think and we operate. And I'm convinced we have to be changed in the way we think about each other before we ever even start to try to apply, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. I'm convinced, apart from a right understanding of what it really means to be part of a community, those simply become boxes that you check. Yeah, I did my duty, I did my job, I did my responsibility, now I can move on with life. That's not what these are intended to be. These are intended to be practical reflections of your already established deep relationships. And so then we can start to ask then, what does it really look like to relate correctly to one another? So... He says it in two ways. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Can I just say, first of all, what it means is you open your heart. We are called by God to open our hearts long before we're ever called to open our homes to one another. Contributing to the needs of the saints is a heart that doesn't ask, what's the minimum that I can give or contribute to somebody? But instead it asks, what's the maximum I can give? It's a heart that sees temporal things, the, the stuff that this God has given you, the numbers in your bank account, um, the things in your home, the things in your life, your skills, your abilities, your talents. It's, instead, it sees all these temporal things as eternal opportunities and investments. It's a heart that is full of Jesus, so it doesn't need stuff to satisfy you. It's a heart that sees the needs of others. It's awakened to those around you. It's alert to opportunities. It plans on giving to contribute to the needs of the saints and to seek to show hospitality is someone that has not so filled their life that there's no space, but instead as they've worked out their calendar, worked out their bank account, worked out their time, their energy, their investment, their mental energy, their emotional energy, that they are incorporating into that plans to care for other people. It's focused on the lack of others rather than their own needs. It can give anonymously so the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. It can give gift cards, clothes, food, furniture, and service. Charles Spurgeon tells this uh, um, story <clears throat> that like only he could. He, he talks about one time he received an offer uh, by a very wealthy man who was part of a very rural church. And so here's Spurgeon ministering in London. He gets this offer from this very wealthy man. Uh, their rural church was having a very difficult time paying off some significant debts that it had accrued. And so he asked Spurgeon if Spurgeon would come and do a meeting, a service, or a series of meetings because people would pack in to see Spurgeon. They could take up offerings. That would help to pay off the debts. And the wealthy man offered Spurgeon to stay at any one of his three homes that he had. He had a house in the country Spurgeon could stay at. He had a town home he could stay at. Or he could even stay at Spurgeon's seaside home. And so basically he's telling Spurgeon is we need you to come so we can take up offerings. Don't excuse me, pay off the debts of our, of our rural church so we can continue to function. People will come to see you. They'll come to hear you. They'll give generously. And then as kind of like payment, I'll let you stay at one of my homes. Spurgeon wrote back this simple sentence, sell one of the places and pay the debt yourself. Now, let's just be honest. There's not a lot of pastors that could agree with saying that. But he's not wrong, is he? This man was willing to use his goods, <clears throat> but not in a way that actually was going to cost him. 
the New American Standard says communicate with the needs of the saints. It captures an important nuance of the passage here. Rather than contribute to communicate is very different in its mindset. It's to come up under the need because you identify with the need. It, it communicates that there's a conversational understanding about the needs in this other person's life. The Macedonians are noted by Paul for their giving because they knew what it was like to have needs, so they sought to meet needs. Neediness helps build generosity. Uh, when Brenda was saying it's, it's a blessing to understand that sometimes in your neediness moment, that God is calling you to minister to someone else, and God is going to use that to help get your eyes off of you, get your eyes on him, and recognize that he is at work in you and through you, and it's a blessing. She's absolutely right. The studies consistently show the most generous people are people that have experienced deep need in their own lives. What if even your seasons of neediness are opportunities for others to bless and minister to you, but they're also intended by God to change the way we think? Because we know what it's like to have need, to have experienced this fear and the question of how will that get solved. So let me, let me ask this. Brainstorm moment, because we have to think. Um, if we don't think, we won't be engaged. We won't really apply it. What are some common cultural areas? What are some ways that arise in our culture, right? Um, so if, if we were downtown, for example, if we were downtown, I think it would be crazy if we didn't have a food and clothing bank and if another church on the corner had one that we didn't contribute to that. Um, I was at another church on the other side of town uh, a week or so ago and it was meeting with somebody and a homeless man came to the door. And when he came to the door, the secretary said, oh, hang on a second. And, and what they did was amazing. She went in the back. She came out with one of those big gallon Ziploc bags. And the gallon Ziploc bag was a toothbrush, some toothpaste, uh, some, one of those like little travel packs of deodorant and just a ton of different kinds of snacks, peanuts and uh, those little uh, cheese on one side, crackers on the other side. Uh, I think there was a Chick-fil-A free kids ice cream cone. It was just a pack of it. And homeless, because they live in a high homeless area. And so they want to just be able to quickly be able to bless and try to meet needs. I've been here 17 years. I've had one homeless guy stop by in 17 years. That's not our area. So what are some ways that we actually do see needs crop up in our culture or even in our region? What are some things that can happen in the life of the body, in the life of your neighborhood, that would become obvious areas where there is an opportunity to contribute to the needs of the saint or to show hospitality? What are some of those? Because if we're not alert to them, if we're not NASB communicating, having conversation, then lots of times they'll go right by us and we'll miss the opportunity. What are some of those? June. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great ministry and resource right here in our area. Absolutely. Is that the one that's right across the street from like where Jonathan Moore's law office is? Yeah. Good. Yeah, that's that's awesome. What are some others? Yeah. That's that's not small. <laughs> that's that's huge. Childcare uh, for for working purposes that way. Yeah, definitely. Especially for a single mom. Yeah. Where's some others? Peter. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. The, the classic example is fish or teach how to fish, right? Yeah, absolutely. Huge help. Huge help. Yeah. Will. Yeah, I think that's super helpful. Yeah, um, my next door app. I mean, it's it's about to be super entertaining for me because it's July Fourth weekend, so everybody's fighting over fireworks. Um, it's always either fireworks or your dog pooped in my yard. So, um, but the other thing that always shows up on the next door app is, hey, does anybody have a doctor, a dentist, a grocery store? Where do you recommend? Where do you recommend? And I mean. Let's be honest, crowdsourcing to the web has a limited value, right? Um, like, what are you going to get? But to be a trusted resource, this is an optometrist that works really well for me. May not work for good for you, but I do recommend them. Um, can be really, really helpful. What about when there's a medical crisis? One of the biggest blessings someone provided for our family when my wife was going through her cancer journey was gas cards. I mean, I was driving to the hospital every single day for months and months and months. So if someone experiences a medical crisis, natural disaster, theft, I remember a number of years ago, Dwight and Melissa Rooley, their, um, their apartment was broken into in Morocco, and our church generously gave lots of money to help get them back on their feet, help get them going. So theft, loss of a job, income change, a need for counseling. What if they need some repairs and they can't do it? Maybe we can do that for them. Maybe we can help provide that. Sometimes you don't have money to give, but you have skills to give. Sometimes you don't have time to give, but you have the recommendations you can make. Child care. There are so many ways that we should be in tune. One of the things that's really helpful is always be on the lookout for anybody that's about to go through a significant new season of life. Somebody that's entering school, somebody that's graduating from school, somebody that's getting married, someone who's lost a spouse, someone who's about to be an empty nester, someone who's had a new baby, someone who's had a new health diagnosis. Like all of these should click in our brains is there a way to contribute to their needs? Is there a way to help care for them? And what can I do to get involved in caring for them? Christ didn't tell this parable for this purpose, but I will capitalize on it for just a moment. When he talks about the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man is in hell, and he's in extreme suffering. Extreme suffering. What does he ask for? Remember, would someone just dip their finger in water and touch my tongue? That's his first request. And we read, I think we read right past that without comprehending this truth. When you're in deep need, even the smallest grace ministers to you. And I say that because I believe one of the lies we tell ourselves is I have very little to offer. And so then we offer nothing. And so maybe someone is in need and all you have to offer is a text message or a note or a hug or I love you and I'm praying for you. And I just want to push against the lies that we believe that I have so little to offer to be worthless because when you've experienced extreme need you realize 
the value of even the smallest measures of grace given to you. And so we're not just called to open our hearts, though. We are called to open our homes, contribute to the needs of the saints, seek to show hospitality. Hospitality recognizes that our homes are not primarily a safe haven for me to enjoy, but a place of safety to invite others into. Hospitality recognizes that it has to be both planned and spontaneous. Planned, or it will never, ever happen. Spontaneous, because it's always available and responsive to the needs of others. Hospitality is not about proper entertaining with just the right meal, entertainment, and timing. Instead, it's about first opening your heart and life to others with the natural outflow of that time, being time and connection. My wife and I both did lots of traveling and ministry at different seasons of our life. And one season, I was traveling uh, for Northland, and a friend of mine, we were in the Twin Cities. And I'll never forget, we, we arrived later than we were supposed to at this sweet couple's home. Uh, and they were, they were classic Minnesotans, eh, ufta? Uh, they're just sweet people, right? So we get there, and they had laid out dinner for us. And, and the dinner was, was like, here's pickles, and here's olives, and here's some meats, and here's this. And it was just like a smorgasbord of different kind of um, very strong-flavored European kind of stuff. And we had gotten there late, uh, much later than we were supposed to. And so they had already eaten dinner, which we were very thankful for. We came in, they said, please just grab a plate. I won't do the accent because that's just wrong. Uh, please just grab, it's hard for me not to. Please just grab a plate and then join us in the living room. We already ate dinner, but we want you to spend time with us. And we were like, great. So we grabbed a plate. We're kind of laughing about it. Good friend of mine, Trevor, and we're throwing out our plates. And we can hear the TV in the living room. So we go in, we sit down, and they had their favorite chairs and then set up for them to sit in. And then they had, they had some nice chairs for us. And it was time for Lawrence Walk. And we're going to watch Lawrence walk together, um, uh, the bubbles and the whole nine yards. And we just sat there and laughed and enjoyed our time with a sweet couple. And what was great about it was that they had done is they had invited us not just into their home, but it was like we were really part of the family. And, and any break, they were like, oh, and you got to check this out, check this out. I mean, we're getting past family photo albums. It was a blast. There's another home that I went and stayed in in Wisconsin. Um, that when I went to, to go to bed, uh, I pulled down the sheets and there were just tons of dead bugs in the sheets. And this family had a small dog, but they didn't want to walk the dog outside. So they had another bedroom that, the, that was the dog's toilet area. And some friends of mine stayed in that room and so they gave them some disinfectant spray and a rag so anytime the dog would pee, they could go ahead and clean that up while they were in there. And the mom and the dad were going away to work every day. And so they had invited us to stay in their home. It was a team of four guys. We were traveling. We did comedy stuff and all. And they had actually invited us in their home so that we could actually be their babysitters for the week. We can do hospitality and we can do hospitality, right? Like, there are places where somebody invites you into their family. And it really doesn't matter if it's pickles and olives and some meats and cheeses. And Lawrence Welk, which... That was probably the first and the last time I've ever watched Lawrence Walk. But I delighted doing that with that couple. It was so fun because it was so clear they just were excited for us to be there and wanted us for that night to be a part of their family. That's a great picture of hospitality. It has to be planned or it never happens, spontaneous, 
so that it's always available and responsive to the needs of others. It's not about proper entertaining with just the right meal or entertainment timing. Open your heart and life to others, and the natural outflow of that will be time and connection. I'm going to ask you uncomfortable questions. How many people from your church have you invited into your home for a meal? When was the last time someone stayed the night at your house? Do others come to you when they need help, or do you give the impression to others you don't want to be bothered? Is your family intentional about welcoming others into your home, even if they're different from you, or if they make you feel awkward or uncomfortable? Why do you fear welcoming others into your life and home? What promises has God given you that you can cling to for hope, peace, and assurance? I love this quote from Trillia Nobel. Let's remember that hospitality isn't about what, when, and where. It's about the who. Hospitality is about the person we get to welcome in and love. We can trust that the Lord will bless those who come into our doors if we have hearts to serve and love them. Your guests might not remember your space, but they will surely remember your care. And I want to just operate on both sides of this fence here. I love one story that is told, I think, in Compelling Community by uh, Lehman Endeavor, where they talk about a college student who invited some folks into her home in D.C. And she said, I'm going to just serve you what I eat and what I, way I live. And so this whole family went to her dorm room, uh, her dorm room apartment, and she served the family ramen. And the family delighted. It was fun. There is that, but there's also the reality that it's also okay if you said, hey, can we meet up at the park because you have small children, and I just want to stand next to you and talk and help you watch your kids while they play. Because entertaining small children can be really tough. And so let's just do this together. We'll go to this. Uh, I, I think of a couple in our church several months ago. They were like, they found out we've lived here 17 years and we'd never been to Soda City on a Saturday morning. I know. And so they said, hey, meet us at Soda City. It was so much fun. Like there was a hospitality that even though I've lived here a long time to just welcome me into their life and their community. And so, yes, there is about opening your home. But I want you to know it doesn't always have to be your home because it starts with your heart of inviting other people into our lives. What are some ways people have made you feel connected? What are some ways people have made you feel like a part of their home or their family or their life? Take those and start doing them. Employ them with others. I'm almost out of time. We've got to go here just so I get to it because I want to touch on the fact that it's hard. I've been building this case that because of our union with Christ and the union with Christ of other believers, it should drive us to see each other differently and to respond differently, to see each other's family. But what if seeing each other this way can actually put obstacles into opening our hearts and homes? Paul just gives a simplistic, I mean, just direct command here. Communicate, contribute to the needs of the saints. Be in touch with, with the neediness of that around you. Seek to meet that need and open your hearts and your homes to others. Like, it's just that direct. And we should do that because we love one another and, and we're loving in a God-like, genuine way. But what if that's really, really hard for us because of the craziness of the family we're in? What if seeing each other's family actually seems to generate obstacles? Galatians 6, he identifies how hard it is. And Paul writes in this in Galatians 6, 9 through 10, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Those verses are telling us that what I'm talking about this morning, what Paul is commanding us to, can get exhausting to the point that we simply don't want to do it anymore. 
and it seems pointless, and it seems like it's gotten nowhere. It's been fruitless, so we don't want to do it. It can be profoundly difficult doing life with family sometimes. For lots of reasons, and I think they can be complex. We can buy into the lie that everybody's supposed to give 50%. You give 50%, I give 50%, we're joined together. And, and I th- I'm sure you've heard of teaching and preaching, you know, that's not the truth. We're not called to give 50%. We're called to love like Christ. But it's really hard if you're loving and caring and you feel like you're never being loved or cared for, isn't it? It's painfully difficult. It's painfully difficult if you feel like you're serving, but you're never being served. It gets re- weary real fast. It's complex because some people are needier than others for all kinds of reasons. It's complex because some have a greater capacity to serve, to give, and to provide care for others. Some people around you in this room may be able to give more than you are with their time, their money, their energy, their talents. It's complex because simply knowing that everyone is under this command, sometimes it's easy to fall into this trap. I talked to one married couple a number of years ago, and, and the husband told me he hatched a plan in his life, and he decided he wasn't going to tell his wife he loved her again until she told him first. Now, we all recognize that's a terrible plan, isn't it? That's a recipe for divorce. Have you ever in your heart, or worse yet, through gossip or slander, talked to somebody else and said, so-and-so didn't greet me? So-and-so didn't say hi to me? So-and-so hugged everybody else but not me? It's the same kind of mindset. That is seeking to be served rather than to serve. And it's so hard because the reality is everybody lives under all these commands. And so it can be tempting to think that I'm doing it, but others aren't. It's complex because some people don't know they should be doing this. They're immature and they need to be taught. It's complex because some refuse to do it. They're being disobedient. It's complex because some are really tired of doing this and they need to be encouraged. The truth is, within our crazy family, Transformed thinking will lead to transformed seeing, which will result in transformed acting. Acting. So suddenly six weeks in this series leads up to this. So I can start making just statements of truth. I have received, you, if you're a believer, you have received the open heart and the ultimate open hospitality of Jesus through salvation. You are united in his life of openness and hospitality and compassion. You are united in his death of sacrificial love and care. You are united in his resurrection that is now preparing a home for others to come and live in. And so now it's Christ on mission to live through you. How will the people around you in this room experience the openness and the hospitality and the love and the affection and the needs meeting of Jesus? It is God's design in part, in large part, in primary part, to do it through you. We're not talking about your love. We're not talking ultimately about your skills, your gifts, and your abilities. We're talking about Christ in you coming out of you. So if when you and I refuse to do this, we are withholding not our love, not our affection, not our gifts, not our talents. We are withholding Jesus from them. You don't get Jesus today. I don't open my heart or my home because of others, but because of him. I don't receive the open heart and home of those here because I've earned it, because I deserve it or I have a right to it, but because of Jesus in them coming out of them. 
One of the premier ways we can help one another here is by honest expressions of gratitude for experiencing someone else's open heart or hospitality. Routinely, they teach in the corporate business world in leadership classes, if you want to develop a community, a culture of community in your business, develop a culture of gratitude. <laughs> One of the benefits of living in the South is if someone gives you something, what do you do in response? Write a thank you note, right? Um, it was funny, I, I don't remember what the circumstances a few weeks ago, we were having a conversation in the house because uh, I think someone gave someone in our home something, they wrote a thank you note back with a little tiny thing with it, and then the person wrote another thank you note, and so they're like, okay, when does the cycle of thank you notes end? It's bad form to not express gratitude. It's bad manners. You might remember two questions on our pre-session quiz focused on time and money. And a third focused on gratitude. In our culture, where we are driven and we're supposed to be showing gratitude, can I just tell you something? The third lowest score on our pre-session quiz was have you expressed gratitude to someone in the body? That tells me that we, I think we do a decent, a good job of generosity and openness. I really do. I think we don't do such a great job by your own evaluation of expressing gratitude for that. One study showed that gratitude increases a person's sense of worth and value to the community. It reduces their feelings of insecurity about whether they're needed or they matter. People who receive expressions of gratitude experience greater alertness, enthusiasm, attentiveness, determination, and energy in comparison to those who don't. How has gratitude, when you've served someone, encouraged you to continue to serve? Opening our hearts and our homes fills others with hope and the weariness of life. It does. It gives them strength for the journey, energy for the race that they're running, air in their lungs. They're not alone. Jesus sees them. He loves them. He cares for them. It's through you, and he sees it, and the person experiences it as from Christ. If we want to encourage one another to continue doing that, it's right, it's altogether right to say, I saw Jesus coming out of you, and it blessed me this way. Thank you so much for ministering grace. Transformed thinking will lead to transformed seeing, which results in transformed acting. I want to call us to have open hearts that lead to open homes, and by that I just mean our life. But I want to be specific enough in this church to say, thank one another when you've experienced Christ through them. When you've experienced service, needs meeting, love, care, and compassion. There are few things that will motivate someone more to continue to do that than expressions of gratitude. I want to encourage you to understand in that cycle of you acting like Christ and or receiving Christ through others and then expressing gratitude and worship and glory to God for it, your community will only grow stronger, more affectionate, more tender, and more Christ-like. He tells us, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality.